I would hurt myself. And I remember one time I was pulled up my sleeves in the kitchen to wash the dishes and my foster mother saw the marks on my arm and she got really angry. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Hey, everybody. I have Kimberly Ryan in the studio today. She is a consultant, trainer, speaker, and artist, among other things. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk today about foster care, how it affects mental health of those that experience it. And you've kind of made it your mission uh, to advocate for youth and adults and, and uh, kind of flip the script on how uh, the stigma affects people that have experienced uh, the foster care system. Yes, okay. for sure. And so hope through resiliency seems to be your mantra. It is my mantra. Yeah, that's great. So, um, but first, let's kind of go through. You have experienced foster care yourself. Yeah, I have. Yeah. So let, can you take us through uh, your journey? Sure. I, I was, it starts in the 70s. That's when I was born. And within the first couple of years of life, my parents got a divorce and my mom was in different relationships and she was actually addicted to drugs at one point. And I went to foster care when I was around two years old. And she went through all the steps to get us back. So I have three siblings. And uh, so that's where the story begins. And so my mom always called me a late bloomer, but she didn't really explain. And I couldn't remember um, what happened to me as a young child. But that definitely impacted my growth uh, through elementary school and really struggled with school and learning. I was held back in third grade. I had a speech impediment. I was teased a lot. So that's sort of how I came. Um, into like figuring out who I was and and uh, it wasn't till I would say middle school that things sort of escalated and I was being abused at home you know emotionally um, verbally but also was being abused sexually by my stepfather and uh, I would write on pieces of paper and hide them in my room and I would hope that my mom would find them and she I don't know if she did or did not but it wasn't until I was in eighth grade that there was an incident and she's very angry at me and I went to school knowing that she was very angry with me and it was that day that she came and got me. Um, I was sitting in eighth period history class and they said, you know, um, Kimberly Ryan, your mom's going to come get you. Please come to the office. And I kind of knew between my desk and my locker that my mom knew that knew the truth and that she's going to confront me about it. And uh, she did. And I went to foster care at age 14. And my mom... So it was a negative response. Yeah. Like she didn't believe you and she didn't how believe dare me. you type stuff? There would be a time where she would say, you know, do not make me choose between you and my husband because I'll always choose my husband. So it was a really, really difficult time. And it was most difficult because I had siblings and I was separated from them. And, you know, for, you know, my stepfather actually knew about the letters that I wrote because he would find them. And sometimes he would, um, if I was riding my bike in the neighborhood, he would follow me. And he would um, tell me that he found these notes and I needed to quit writing them. And that, you know, if my mom found them, that, you know, I'd ruin our family and I would never see my brothers again, which is kind of what happened. So nothing happened to them. You were, you were sent away. I was the only one in danger. 
I mean, that's what the system found at the time. I mean, looking back as an adult, I definitely think there are other warning signs and things that are going on in the home that could have caused them to think about removing my brothers too, but it just didn't happen. And of course they experienced it differently and I can't speak for them, but um, I definitely as an adult can look back and wish that maybe some things were different. Sure. Have you uh, since rekindled relationship with your brothers? Ah, uh, off and on through yeah. the years. It's been definitely challenging and uh, much later in my story, I would reconcile with my parents in a way. And um, because I reconciled with them, it would mean that I would connect, like reconnect with my brothers. But I was in foster care till I was 19, till I graduated from high school. Um, I was a little bit older because I got held back in elementary school. Um, but I did graduate as an honor student from high school and I was accepted to college. And it was when I was in college that I decided to reconnect with my mom. And uh, because she did not do anything to get me back um, as far as what the court mandated her to do. So I became aware of the court and I haven't even talked about my father, but my parents did divorce, but my father um, never tried to have a relationship with me as a kid. And when I remember asking her if I could talk to him, because my older brothers, they had conversations with him on the phone and she would say, you don't know him, so what's the point? So that was sort of, you know, my childhood up to the age of 14 when I went to foster care. And um, they actually, the court, you know, contacted him and asked him if he wanted custody. And um, he wasn't ready to take on a teenage girl. And so he thought if I had a supportive foster family and he could still maintain a relationship with me or have one, then that's what he opted to do. So that hurt too. And I'm kind of like as um, a teenager, definitely was more conflicted about it. And the older I got, the more that I got to learn my father's story and what he experienced made me feel that, you know, I can really be angry with him for what happened to that part of my life when he wasn't in it. Yeah. So at 14, what did the transition into foster care, what did that look like and, and how was it? Um, it's been interesting because the last couple of weeks I've been watching um, this new um, series on Netflix called Anne of Green Gables, but it's called Anne with an E, like today's modern version. But when I was in my very first day that I was placed in foster care, it was like an emergency placement. And I just remember that whole entire like 24 hours, the foster parent put on um, a TV show and it was the, um, the series from 1987. And so- Same thing. Same show. Wow. I, mean, I mean, different sure. characters and everything. Sure. But um, watching this series recently, um, it's about you know a young girl who was orphaned and so I've been thinking about, like, how did that foster mother choose to put on that show? Like, at 14, like, in all my, like, trauma and feelings and feelings of abandonment and rejection, like, probably wasn't really processing what I was watching. But now that I look back, it's, it's very powerful and it's a strong metaphor for me on how I eventually learned to cope and build relationships, which is kind of what I think the television show is about as well. Do you think that was intentional? I don't know. Like, I want to go back <laughs> and ask. I don't even know who that woman is. She's one of the few people from my story that um, I don't know her name, but I went from an emergency placement to a more permanent placement, and I lived there for a year. And the foster family had some challenging dynamics. My perception was that they got older kids and younger kids, and that um, they expected the older 
foster youth to watch the younger ones. So even though I was in foster care, um, going to counseling, going to court hearings about like, what is my life gonna look like? Um, this foster family expected me to take care of like two and three year olds who themselves were traumatized. So like they would wake me up in the middle of the night if the child had an accident in their bed and ask me to help you know, clean that mess up or give them a bath. So it was really challenging. And so um, there was actually another um, couple that I knew and uh, they knew me from church. My mom had grown up in the church and, um, but she herself didn't believe in God, but I felt like she always sent us to church because it was free babysitting. Hmm. And uh, so when we went, I met this family who was a part of the youth group. And the interesting part about how all these pieces intersect is that um, when my mom did read the letter, the first person she called was the pastor at the church where I had been going for many years. And, you know, he came to the house and he had never reported a child abuse case before. So he consulted a volunteer in the church who was a probation officer. And so um, when I went to foster care to my permanent, my first more permanent home, the first one, the very first day they had a Christmas program because it was December 12th, 1991. And I went to this Christmas program and I actually saw this family that I knew from the church group. And um, a guy came over to me and said he knew what happened and that they lived actually up the road from where I was placed in my first foster home. And they said that I could go with, to church with them um, when I was ready and if I wanted to. So I ended up doing that for a year. And after uh, spending that time with them, they actually told me that they wanted to be my foster parents. And they asked me to come live with them. And you did. And I did. So I was a freshman in high school and I moved in with them. Did they have other children? Yeah, they had two biological daughters. One that was older than me and one was that was younger than me. How was that? It, at the time, it was, you know, like typical teenager, like just navigating, you know, life with another new family and their um, beliefs and rules and things. Um, sometimes it was challenging because faith played such a major part in their lives. And faith had always been a part of my life. And actually, like, going back to my my biological mother, she was actually adopted. So um, a lot of times in my story, I talk about breaking the cycle. So my mom was placed in a foster care system. She was adopted at four years old. And so when she was adopted, she was adopted by a Christian family who raised her in the church. But from what I know about my biological mother's side of the family is that her biological mother was addicted to drugs. So then my mom became addicted to drugs. So when I was in foster care, the only thing that I kept telling myself over and over was I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to break the cycle. And that sort of like was my mantra early on, but it put a, ended up putting a lot of pressure on me, um, unhealthy pressure in the long run, um, which I would cope with and deal with later in life as an adult. But that first, the second foster family that um, I'm appreciative, they, they gave me the type of life that I don't think foster families typically give because I was the only foster child and there wasn't a lot of change in that regard, getting used to new people or having, you know, there was always sort of a fear of, you know, are they going to reject me? You know, so I have to be on my best behavior. I have to do exactly what they say, sort of fall in line. And I was afraid of making mistakes. And I even remember um, on my 16th birthday, um, they had a surprise birthday party for me. 
and I opened up their gift and it was luggage. And I remember instantly crying. Oh, man. And in their family, every single person in their family had matching, matching luggage. And my luggage was the same as theirs. So in their eyes, they're welcoming me to their family and saying that we have a place for you. But for me, the suitcase just re- represented like the Going fear of they're, they're always going to be ready for me to leave. And, you know, I think one of the, my struggles and why it's so important to me now is mental health and being able to talk about, you know, um, what I was going through. And even though I was in counseling and I was in a support group in high school, there are still parts of my mental health journey that were not, I was too afraid to speak up and say, you know, I, I think I want to hurt myself. There's different things along the way. Like I would, um, hurt myself. And I remember one time I was pulled up my sleeves in the kitchen to wash the dishes and my foster mother saw the, the marks on my arm and she got really angry. And so looking back, I wondered, you know, if there was more support we could have had as a family unit or therapy, you know, that could help me vocalize how I was feeling and what led me to make those decisions. But in isolation, it was more of a, if you believe in God, you know, you wouldn't do this type thing, which, you know, that was their beliefs. and um, Praying out of you kind of a thing. Kind of, yeah. So, you know, but I had grown up um, as a child with my grandmother's faith. And, you know, being a part of their family, it wasn't much different. But it definitely was more like I felt like I had to fit into a box for them. And um, I would go on to go to a, a Christian college, and um, which— I would never change. Like if people said, would I go to a different college if I could? Um, I went to Mount Vernon Nazarene University. And it was there where I built, started building relationships where I could be myself and tell parts of my story. And um, that's actually how I learned to drive in college is I had a job supervisor who just asked me, like, you know, um, what's one thing you always wanted to do that you couldn't? And I said, get a driver's license. And she actually taught me how to drive. But it wasn't a formalized program. Um, It was just someone saying, you know, I recognize there's this need. How can I help out? And so it's those type of relationships um, that helped me um, be honest with myself. So in my sophomore year, I definitely was experiencing suicide ideation. And um, I was afraid to talk to anybody about it. But I would go to my resident director. And though I knew not to say it, I still knew how to ask for help. And so it was in college that I recognized that it wasn't good to isolate myself or um, not speak up. So even though it was a good experience and you were able to open up, you still, the problem still stayed with you, which is, you know, part of the deal, unfortunately, with trauma. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot more research now about how trauma impacts you know, children and their experience in foster care and PTSD. And um, for me personally, I feel like I've always struggled with anxiety and depression and um, especially um, in high school, but I didn't know how to talk about it. And I was afraid to talk about it because, you know, if something's wrong with me, people are going to accept me and people already look at me differently. So it's just better if I hold it in. Mm -hmm. And the longer I hold it in, the more it hurts the more I felt like, you know, trying to fit in, but I don't fit in. So, you know, it wasn't until much later in my 30s that I finally would say out loud 
that I'm depressed or I'm anxious and it would impact my ability to parent, go to work, um, have healthy relationships. And one thing that I always say is I have a picture of myself when I was 14 before I went to foster care and it's a picture of me smiling on my birthday. And that's pretty much a facade that I could pretty much, you know, convince anybody I was okay. And, uh, but counseling and treatment um, have been major points in my journey. And today I work with foster youth and that's usually the one thing that I see right away. Those who frequently face barriers and don't know what to do. And I mentioned counseling and they put their walls up and they say, that's not for me. And, it's, and I'm a former foster youth, helping foster youth. And most of the people that work in my office, they're not former foster youth. And, you know, they, you know, have um, master's degrees and they have, you know, the background to be able to work with foster youth. But I always try to say it through my experience, which I still don't find help, is very helpful to them. <laughs> like sometimes really? they're like, yeah, like, you know, like just because you went through it doesn't mean that you know what you're talking about. But I've been working in higher education for 15 years and, you know, have been working with foster youth for the last, I think, six years. And so I've gotten to know a lot of students and their stories. And no matter what type of support is given to them, counseling is usually the thing that they, they push farthest away. And um, it's, it's, a buzz, it's a buzzword that could freak some people out. Yeah. Because, again, it comes back to can I be authentic and am I going to be judged and... Am, am I going to be limited in my circumstances because someone's going to prevent me from moving forward because, you know, the stigma of having a mental health issue is that you're not able to do or perform or be what you want to be because, you know, you're not going to meet, meet your maximum success because you're always going to be facing this. And even for me personally, um, I've had many doctors through the years um, that have asked me how I'm feeling and have wanted to give me prescriptions for depressants. And I've always shied away from it. Going back to my, it's more been a part about like my family roots and knowing that my, my biological grandmother had a drug addiction and that my mother had a drug addiction. And that also, at least as, I, as far as I know, like my mother, when she was on drugs, she tried to kill herself. So there's this fear within me that as much as I'm trying not to be like my biological family, that it's, it could happen. So I'm not going to do anything that's going to risk that. And then the other side of the coin is, is that I have to, I've always had the mentality that I had to convince everybody that um, like I'm a survivor. So if I take that, then, then what happened to me is still part of me. And I can't fully be proud of where I've come from or where I'm going because, you know, I'm, I'm on meds. Have you <clears throat> gone this whole time without taking medication? Yeah. And this Un is, that's unbelievable. And you did that, as I read, at a pretty young age. You were assertive enough to say that you didn't want to take medication. Mm -hmm. Am I, yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's but I awesome. just got to a point where um, so many pieces of my life like, sort of just came together. And I real I looked at my son one day. And I just was like, I have to do something differently. Because if I'm going to break, breaking the cycle isn't just about what I'm not going to do, but what I can do. And I can help myself. So why am I not doing that? Because I don't want him to someday be like, I have to fit in this box to be accepted or loved. But even if something's wrong, you know, he'll know that 
you know, he can be loved despite those things if he has to face them. So for me, you know, um, so what did you do to, to break the cycle? I mean, how did you like coping mechanism? I mean, you'd been coping forever, but right. in your thirties, when you said it kind of, you were able to say I'm depressed and it was getting in the way of parenting. How did, like, what did you do to break it? I think the biggest part of that process was reconciling my relationships. So it began with my mother and it actually began with my mother in 2001. So I was still in my twenties at the time, but I tried to have a relationship with her, which I think I started to say earlier, but you know, there was a, she actually came to me and said that she had kicked out her husband, my stepfather, and that she believed me. She said that she had caught him looking at child pornography, that she's going to divorce him. And so when I began a relationship with her, I had said, you know, she said she didn't want to talk about the past, which is really hard because all of my life I've had questions. And um, and they so many, you know, that have not been answered. So, but in order to have a relationship with her, I was willing to make that sacrifice because at least, you know, I wanted to try. And then I said, if we're going to do that, you cannot lie to me. And then in 2001, in December, um, I went to see her on Christmas Eve, and I had Christmas gifts. And uh, she said not to come because she wasn't feeling well, but I'm kind of stubborn. And so I was like, I'm just going to stop by and give them to her. And um, when I went to knock on the door, uh, my stepfather answered. And it was the first time that I'd seen him. And uh, I just... I don't know how I did it, but I just walked into the into the house. My mother was sitting on a couch. I went over and kissed her on the cheek, and I said, I love you, but I'm done. Like, I can't. And then two years later, I moved to New York in 2003, and that was after I did AmeriCorps and um, realized that I wanted to study creative art therapy. And when I was in my program, I had to work, um, did my internship in a psychiatric hospital with youth and um, outpatient with adults. And having um, treated people with depression and anxiety and knowing myself that I had it and then didn't cope with it, but knew that my mom also struggled with mental illness, it all would provide the layering needed for me and the context for me later in life in my 30s, as I mentioned earlier, to kind of make some major changes in my life. But when I was in New York, I had to do a genogram for one of my classes, and it allowed me to look at my family history. And when I was doing that, I interviewed um, people from my mother's adoptive family. So I didn't really know a lot about my my mother's adoptive family. I just knew that she was adopted at four years old um, from Maryland um, and didn't know any bigger picture. But I would find out that my biological mother's adoptive mother, her mother during the Great Depression was married and had several children and she became a widow. Um, but then she would go on to have two children with her new husband. And he also brought in a child from his previous marriage. Um, So one of those children that um, they had together from this new marriage would be my grandmother. My grandmother would get married, and she would not have children, and she would adopt my mother. And then we've talked about how my mother gave me up. And then so by the time that I'm living in New York, I did the genogram. And then I started to have relationships, and I would end up um, getting pregnant. Um, with a guy that I wasn't, I knew I was going to be in a long-term relationship with. It sort of all just came together, and I realized, you know, um, you know, I was very scared at first, but decided to be a mother. Um, different people tried to actually influence me to give him up, 
Um, they said, you know, maybe he deserves two parents or two Christian parents, or, you know, maybe I can't give him the life, um, that he, you know, needs. And for me, um, that one class in grad school, like of all the student loans I have, like that one class really, you know, made me realize that like I could be a mother and that I could change. I could break the cycle, but also doing that genogram made me realize that, um, that my grandmother, my my mother's adoptive mother, really began a new cycle. Like she chose my mom, she chose to love her. Um, and so I had a choice to love my son and be a mother to him. And no one is gonna tell me otherwise. And so never a doubt. Never a doubt. I mean, yes, I'm not gonna say never a doubt because there was yeah. fear, maybe not doubt, but fear. And then again, um, I kept saying that people put me in a box. So I was really fearful. I put on a facade for several years because basically what happened was um, when I would end up being in my first relationship and, you know, what people might consider losing your virginity late in life, like from that first relationship, I was wounded um, and hurt um, emotionally. Um, and I would sort of be like, you know, if God loves me, and, he, you know, why did he allow me to enter this relationship and be wounded? So then it sort of, like, made me feel like maybe, you know, you know, my faith wasn't much. And so that led me to spiral into another healthy, unhealthy relationship and an unhealthy, another one, another one, another one, until I found out I was pregnant. So by the time I found out I was pregnant, I always talk about how I was in complete darkness and that my son literally was the light. Like, he's a, he's a reason... That, and again, I wasn't medicating and I've never self-medicated, so I've never done any drugs and I haven't drank a lot. And people, you know, always ask me like why, you know, I don't. And I always go back to like, it runs in my family. Like, I don't want to take a chance of becoming addicted. So I'm just going to stay away from it. But then once I was in these, these relationships and I felt so much rejection early in my life that that rejection would follow me in my relationships. And every time I had a failed relationship, I would feel even less about myself to the point that I didn't care who I was with. And I just made really uh, bad decisions with relationships. So then when I had my son, it, he literally changed my life. He saved my life. And like going back to, you know, reconciling with my mother, there was a, um, a journal that I found um, that she had written in. And I went to see her with my son um, about a year later after I had him. And um, I opened it up and found the day, December 18th, 2011. And she wrote that it was the best day of her life since the day she was born. Oh, man. And um, she said she... Um, has a grandson, she has a daughter again, and she said she went around the neighborhood telling her neighbors that she has, you know, this family. And um, I've read literally um, in front of crowds, like that whole um, excerpt of, you know, her journal, and I can never get through it because it's always so powerful to think that, you know, one choice can change everything. And uh, for my mother, you know, I'm really thankful that I had that extra time with her and it definitely makes me think about what time I have with my son and how I want to be the best mother possible um so like all the pieces are there and they come together in a way that you know I recognize that you know I can't be perfect and um in 
and all those imperfections that I've experienced over life and like experiencing the loss of my mother. And then um, three years later, after my mom died, my father died from kidney cancer. And, you know, that was um, diagnosed in October and he died in January. Both my parents died in January, um, three years apart. And um, I would go to the doctor multiple times and the doctor would always ask me, um, how are you doing? Like most doctors ask when you go to see them. But every time I went to a doctor, and I went to different doctors, because um, I had some in Columbus when I lived in Columbus, and I transitioned to Cincinnati in 2017. And no matter what doctor I went to, whenever they asked me that, I would start to cry. And um, they'd ask me, you know, all the questions they need to ask when they see someone, just bawling their eyes out at a doctor's appointment that's what you do in therapy or something. But um, I had been to therapy off and on, and my therapist had always recommended, you know, um, treatment with medicine, antidepressants, but I always rejected it. So it wasn't until after my father died that, you know, I kind of looked at my son um, because, you know, if I've lost all my family and my son's father's not in his life, that means he doesn't have much of a family on that side. And so I am his family. And so I have to take care of myself. And so finally, um, I started taking medication and it, it definitely has changed me. It's changed how I feel about myself. Um, I feel like I used to move at a snail pace. And some people would maybe be shocked because like I'm a pretty active person. And I do a lot of you know, speaking and training, and I have a full-time job, and I also consult with a um, nonprofit out of Maryland that supports foster youth, and like, and all of this busyness, you know, I was like, I'm not really practicing what I preach, and I'm putting on a pretty good cover, and I don't want to, you know, take any chances and fail to the point that someone could be like, you know, your unfit parent. Right. So it was a reality check for me, losing both of my parents. Um, because it finally built up all the emotions needed where I couldn't hide it anymore because I felt like maybe my son um, wasn't getting the best that he could get as far as me just knowing that I was moving at the snail pace and I knew that wasn't normal. Um, and the meds helped? Yeah, they they really helped. And, like, it's 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 like there's so much stigma around, like, you know, taking pills and like a friend of mine just posted something this morning about that very thing on Facebook. And um, like, you know, and I, I remember, uh, you know, even in my job, my performance, I could be honest and be like, my boss is like, is everything okay? Without saying like, hey, you're sucking at your job, whatever. Or like, you're not, like something's off about you. I don't know what it is, right? So like having my boss ask me that, but in a respectful way, I probably said it not in the best way because right. of that negative self-talk we tell ourselves. Like when someone says, you know, there's these, but I took it in a way as, you know, someone's telling me I need to take care of myself. And so with all those pieces, you know, connecting, I just, finally started taking the medicine and you know um i still have days where i struggle but um sure i you know a lot of people knock meds but mm -hmm. it's just another it's another p potential not crutch but it's a potential thing to help you right you know and, and it doesn't work for some people some people never try it but it uh 
Right. And I've ha- I've told some people, you know, like, I, you know, I've ri- definitely written about it on like my blog, but and had conversations and it's come up in my in my speaking and sharing lately. But like there's certain people that I've known like my whole life, um, you know, from foster care or high school. And, you know, some people have been like, we're glad that you took that step. And other people are kind of like, so how's that going to help you? Like, you know, and. You know, I just have to take, I don't take that personally because it maybe won't work for them, but I know for a fact that it's working for me and it's helping me. Yeah, and you got to stay true to your yourself and whatever works because you're always going to have people second-guess things. But Okay, so let's talk about what you're doing now. You're big on you know the successes of foster youth as opposed to always talking about the, the stigma and uh, the things they go through, but, you know, kind of coming out on the other side. So talk a, <clears throat> a, a bit about what you're, what you're doing and your passion now and how it's going. Okay. So pretty much the big picture is advocacy for foster youth and uh, the statistics. I always say that, like, I've met some students who have told me that they're not statistics. And, but there's so many numbers out there, you know, about in Ohio, like there's a thousand foster youth who age out of the system every year. So, you know, I was one of those in 1996. And in 1996, there was no, nothing that really prepared me. You know, I still remember my foster parents saying like, you're on your own, like we care about you. We'll support you, but we're not gonna support you financially. And you're really on your own. And, you know, I navigated getting a license, going to college, all those things on my own. And uh, so my work now really is how can I help foster youth, you know, make the best decisions, give them some tools. Sometimes I share my story. Sometimes I just share resources. And uh, that's what I do now at the University of Cincinnati. I work with the Higher Education Mentoring Initiative. We work with uh, high school students through college and beyond to help them reach their educational goals. That have been through foster yes definitely. so you're not only working with small you know younger kids you're working with you know because a lot of times like you said before that the trauma doesn't set in until you're older right so i think that's great that you're you're helping people and you help them with career path and right all it's kinds about getting that education yeah and then figuring out you know what are you going to do with that education and it's not always you know a straight line right and sometimes i think um, it's already hard to be a teenager or a college student, you know, trying to make it all fit. But like when you're going into all that with past trauma or mental health, you know, um, or if you fail, then it's like, well, maybe college isn't for you. And even going back to my story, like there was someone who was like, well, you know, when I was failing some classes and struggling, you know, maybe college isn't for you. And I remember my first foster family had conversations with me, like maybe I should go to vocational school that, you know, college wasn't worth it. It's a lot of money. Um, but I find now that, you know, working with foster youth, trying to help them figure out that path. And, you know, a lot of them get access to all these financial resources and they don't know how to take care of those finances. Financial literacy is, you know, something that's really important, something I've always struggled with and wished I had a coach with me every Mm -hmm. step of the way. Um, And I frequently tell students, you don't want to end up in a situation where you have to claim bankruptcy or get rejected for a loan or not have a co-signer. Like, 
there's a lot of pressure there. And so education and career is a pathway for them to stabilize their lives. And with that missing piece, that's where many foster youth can end up homeless, incarcerated, pregnant, um, struggling with mental illness and not being able to maintain employment because they don't know how to cope. So really like when foster youth are emancipated, when they leave foster care, either 18 or 21, um, you know, there's a lot of room for opportunities and, you know, hopefully myself and, you know, my coworkers, and we also work with about a hundred mentors who support all of the foster youth in the program. So it's a lot of different ways that foster youth can know that, you know, they have a support system, which is really important. So, so is the majority, majority of the time, is it the day you turn 18 that you're starting the transition plan or? Well, the thing about Ohio is it's unique because there are 88 counties and we're one of the few states where every county can sort of do foster care differently. Mm. So um, um, in Hamilton County, um, you can stay in foster care until you're 21. So you can be emancipated at, eight, at 18 or at 21. So like I work with, co uh, with college students right now who were emancipated, who are fully on their own, doing college on their own. And then I work with other foster youth who are still in the custody of Hamilton County who are doing college and getting the extra support or they're in transitional housing or independent living. So they're getting help paying their bills, like paying their rent and their electricity. Whereas I have other students that I work with who, you know, um, are struggling to pay their bills because they don't have that support anymore. And it looks different. It's based on, you know, um, some of the s students that I've worked with, you know, have been emancipated and they've not been ready, in my opinion. And, um, and you know, others, you know, just are trying to figure out all the different resources. And it does come back to finances in a way because foster youth get access to Pell Grants, which is 60, around $6,300 a year. And in Ohio, they can also get, um, it's called an educational training voucher for up to $5,000 if they meet the criteria as a full-time student. So foster youth could you know, get around $11,000, $12,000, but then they get enrolled. They don't know how to navigate college. Um, they don't know you know, how to communicate with professors. Like, I'm sick, I miss class, I don't know what I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna drop out. And I'm like, did you call the professor and tell them what your situation is? Um, do you know about office hours? You know, so just teaching them those things um, to be able to help them succeed, but sometimes they struggle and then they withdraw and then they end up owing schools money and then they have to figure out how to pay that money back in order to go back to school and take advantage of all these financial resources. So I recently spoke at a forum that um, Mike DeWine had. Um, he has an advisory committee that's been holding forums around the state of Ohio. They just finished not too long ago, and there was one here in Cincinnati, and I went to it, and um, I spoke as an alumni of foster care, and I wanted to make sure that... Um, people realize there's this need that I'm talking about, like foster youth in college, figuring out how to navigate it. And they have access to all these financial resources. They should be able to succeed. Um, but, you know, um, typically only 43% of foster youth graduate from high school. And then um, the numbers range from 10% to like 30, 30, 36% where those decide to go to college but there's like 3% or less that actually graduate from high, from college. Really? So, and it's not, you know, I'm always saying I'm not a statistic. You know, I graduated, you know, but I have a lot of debt and no financial 
coaches that taught me how to be responsible of the debt, how to, you know, how many loans should I take out? And I'm frequently telling students, just because they offer you a loan doesn't mean you can accept it. You have to learn to live on a budget and within your means, because, you know, sooner or later, this, they're going to ask for that money back. You're going to have to figure out how to pay it back. And I know that it's not easy. Right. Um, but I think it's great that the University of Cincinnati has a program yes. for specifically that. Have you found in your work with consultation and, and other things that that exists in other universities? There are different. Actually, Ohio um, has multiple colleges that have programs. And I'm probably not going to list them all. Sure. But the one of the first ones I wrote was at Wright State. They have an independent scholars program, which supports foster youth. They actually recruit them before their freshman year, and they support them, and they have a curriculum and a program that helps them through their senior year. Um, Cleveland State University actually has a big endowment, and they give away scholarships to foster youth every year. And I believe they're actually building like a, a building dedicated to uh, foster youth success. Um, in Cleveland, but there are other colleges, Bowling Green. Um, I used to work at Columbus State Community College. They have a program that I started there. And um, also, that's great. There's Hawking College. I mean, there's a lot. There's probably yeah. a dozen that have programs, but most colleges have liaisons. And I've been a part of also another organization called Ohio Reach. And we worked um, basically the last five years to help support colleges. Um, and that's where I actually found out about HEMI. Um, and I was really looking to pivot my career. I wanted to be more student-focused. I had been in a director role and had been in charge of a lot of things. And I knew with having a young child that I wanted less responsibility. So, And I wanted to also explore speaking and consulting and things like that. So I just wanted to take some of the pressure off and having a leadership position like that. Um, but, you know, Cincinnati is unique, and I don't think there's anything really like it in Ohio. There's lots of colleges that have programs, but nothing that really begins in the high school years and then blends into college. And it's a consistent relationships, both with the mentors and the program staff um, that are working with foster youth. Um, nationally, I don't think there's many programs like it either. I know that, you know, California, Michigan... Um, Maryland, Virginia, I've, wor I've worked and seen programs exist to support colleges, uh, college students that are former foster youth. And really, I think California, like they have a model where they have a guardian scholars program on every college campus, which is sort of like my dream for Ohio or for, you know, the country to sort of take that on as a model. My whole, um, when I spoke with the forum that I mentioned earlier, I said that every um, campus has like a veterans office that supports veterans who are using their GI benefits to go back to school. And a lot of um, those veteran offices have a full-time staff. They have uh, maybe a lounge or, you know, support services geared towards helping veterans um, adjust to college and be successful in college. And so I, I don't see why not. We can't do that for foster youth. And there are other programs that exist. I mentioned the educational training voucher. I also mentioned TRIO. But TRIO is not exclusive to foster youth. And there's so many layers of... Um, what is TRIO? TRIO. Um, what does it stand for? Oh, my gosh. You're going to ask me that. <laughs> well, I mean, I you, you don't, have to, I don't want to put you no, on the spot. No, I, well, it's... Um, well, I know that they have different programs, and I know that many of the colleges here in Cincinnati have those programs. So, like, there's student support um, student support services, which helps college students currently in college. There's Upward Bound, um, which helps um, students, I believe, in high school or middle school. 
And so really, it's to help, um, TRIO is a national program. It's federal money that's geared towards colleges and you have to apply for it. And not all schools have it based on who applies for it and gets, you know, um, affirmed for that work. I really think that, you know, based from the work that I did in Columbus and the students that I've worked with there, um, the students that I've worked here in Cincinnati, that there's so many um, challenges from being a single parent to um, mental health. And, you know, I always talk about mental health and, you know, something that I probably never talk about is my own struggle with um, eating, having an eating disorder and developing that before I went to foster care and then figuring out how to cope with that over my whole life. It's something I've journaled a lot about because, you know, like I always feel like I have this struggle with food. And um, even having that as my own personal struggle when I started working with college students, I didn't really recognize that how every everything, every choice you make in creating programming or services for um, foster youth didn't have um, significance. So for example, um, hosting a program for foster youth and having like a, you know, a lunch and like a learning opportunity, having discussion or support group or whatever. We always have food at our events, but I never once took into account that um, there's a lot of foster youth out there have uh, struggle with eating disorders. So I'm trying to welcome them in and feel supported, but I'm having food that they don't know how to cope with. They don't, they don't know if they should eat or they're not gonna eat what people are gonna think or am I providing options that they can actually enjoy because they struggle with I don't with think food. you're doing that out of no malice or disrespect, no. you know? No, I don't think it's out of malice, but it develops like a certain empathy and understanding that Washington youth uh, is a population that there's so many layers um, of depth and need and understanding, like empathy and compassion that, like, you know, in the, that go beyond just being a college student. And so it makes me aware that, well, maybe I'm going to provide, you know, an event where there is a lunch, but there's going to be like a snack table with some healthy alternatives. So someone can still get something on a plate and feel like they're a part of the group because they are eating, but they're not overwhelmed by a big tray of sandwiches. Right. So like doing this work requires, I feel like that sensitivity that that's where maybe Ohio Reach has tried to um, provide um, support for colleges to be able to develop programs. And they even funded money. They were, High Reach was given um some resources, financial resources in the past to help launch mentoring programs. And so all of this work has developed a sensitivity, I think, in Ohio for, for college campuses. More and more are becoming aware and trying to do something. So I think UC is one of those. And we partner because we help students no matter which college they want to go to. We have relationships and partnerships with other colleges. So we're having these conversations. But the conversations we're having in Hamilton or Cincinnati, Ohio, I mean, I feel like, you know, I feel um, a responsibility or I'm, I guess I would say I have a passion and a purpose for trying to get as many colleges aware mm -hmm. of this population, what can be done. Um, because, you know, another buzzword is first-generation college students. These students are the first in their family to go to college. They're often called first-generation. Um, but often, even those first-generation college students, they have family um, in some way or another, whereas foster youth often don't go to college with a support system. 
And um, I was just talking to someone the other day about an organization called My Very Own Blanket. And um, I started working with um, the CEO about six or seven years ago, and she provides blankets to kids in foster care and quilts to college students. And um, many college students go to college without the best like there's all these sales around, you know, the fall, you know, August or whatever, where um, they're like, here's a dorm package. Here's your comforter, your trash can, like everything you're going to need for college. But often college students don't go to college with that right? because they don't have the resources or someone telling them this is what you need. You know, they're just trying to figure out, am I going to be able to afford a meal plan or a parking pass or get back and forth every day? Um, but my very own blanket, they um, provide college quilts. Um, to college students so they feel like they have something that's not just, you know, pre-bought, like a prepaid or a prepackaged comforter, but it's actually handmade by someone and the people who make the quilts actually write their name on the quilt. So whoever receives the quilt gets to know, like, someone made this for me. And so um, they provided several of our students at Hemi with those blankets. Um, but I've been working with Jessica um, Rudolph, who's the CEO for many years, and uh, she feels that, you know, every child or college student has should feel cared about and loved. And so that's the mission. And and so I feel like if, you know, every college in Ohio knew about that, then, you know, they can benefit from having her as a resource. But it's like having the knowledge, bringing the resources together, and then, you know, sharing that information. And, you know, that's part of my mission and purpose. So that kind of falls outside my normal nine to five. So that's what I try to do besides just speaking and consulting is try to bring resources together to benefit. Um, and so that's, you know, one of my goals for yeah. Ohio. Well, you're doing wonderful work Thank and you. you're an extraordinarily strong person. And I know that, uh, you're helping lots of people. And like you said, hopefully other colleges will, uh, will follow suit and uh, stigma and all that stuff with foster care will get better. So I want to thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah.